All right. Good morning, everybody. So, uh, like Pamela said, uh, we're continuing our Ephesians series today, and actually, after 11 weeks, we have come to the last part of Ephesians. Um, and uh, so you want to think of this as Paul's last exhortations, his final words to the church in Ephesus. And uh, this passage actually includes uh, something that you might have heard when you were a little kid in Sunday school. There's this favorite passage about the armor of God. Does that ring any bells? Um, so that's what we're going to look at today uh, in more detail. So let's not waste any time. Uh, turn with me to where we left off last week. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Lord, right now, uh, we just want to invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds. God, we pray that you would help us to turn all of our attention to you, and we invite you, Lord, to transform us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. All right. So Paul ends this letter here by telling us that we are in a war, and we need to be ready for war. Right? He says we're in a struggle. Some translations say that we're in a battle. And he tells us to take our stand in this battle. Now, for me, this kind of raises a question of what is our attitude supposed to be like? What is the attitude that Paul is calling us to have here? 
And I think if we're not careful, we can assume that Paul is encouraging us to have a certain kind of attitude towards those outside of the church. And I would describe it as an attitude that is adversarial and aggressive. Uh, The adversarial attitude would say, you know, people outside the church, these people are our enemies, right? Those worldly, non-Christian people. And the aggressive attitude would say, well, we need to fight them. We need to stop them, humiliate them, or silence them. And I think that when some people hear Paul saying, get on your armor, we're in a war, whether they realize it or not, that's where their mind starts to go, towards this adversarial, aggressive way of thinking. And, uh, you know, some people... God bless them, they just kind of have a naturally adversarial and aggressive disposition and they hear something like this and it's sort of like they think that Paul is giving them permission to lean into that aspect of their personality. To lean into this, this aggression and adversarial relationship toward those atheists, those liberals, those conservatives, those Muslims, those academics, those elites, right? Fill in the blank, whatever group of people that you might consider outside the fold of righteousness in your mind. But this is why it's so important to read this passage closely, as it is with all passages in the Bible, right? We've got to remember verse 12. Oh, where did that come from? Whoops. Okay, well, hopefully the rest of it's good. That was last week. Uh, (laughs) Okay, we got to remember verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words... Our battle is not against people. People are flesh and blood. Every person, no matter how awful, is flesh and blood, right? So that means that they are not our true enemy. Our true enemies are not physical beings, but they are spiritual powers. Now, to be clear, people can be very influenced by these spiritual powers. And when they are, they can do great harm. And it is good to try and prevent and reduce the harm that people cause when they're under the influence of these spiritual powers. But if they are flesh and blood, we have to recognize those people, they're not our real enemies. No person is our real enemy. We're supposed to think of people as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to think of them as people whom God loves and whom Christ died for. As people who might repent. False religion tells us that faithfulness to God means seeing people as true enemies. And that devotion might look like attacking them. You know, some of you might have followed uh, the story in the news this week about the the writer Salman Rushdie who was attacked when he was speaking on stage somewhere Um, 
He was attacked by a, a extremist, fundamentalist uh, Muslim. Last I heard, he was speaking, so that's good. It looks like he's probably going to pull through. Um, but it's, it's important for, for us to recognize that kind of act is the opposite of what God calls us to. We're not supposed to see other human beings as the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are supposed to be the opposite of adversarial and aggressive. We're supposed to be peacemakers. Now, the armor that we're called to put on, of course, it is not physical armor. It's spiritual armor, and that should be another reminder to us that we're not being called to be aggressive, adversarial, violent people. Uh, in fact, if we really understand the New Testament, we have to be able to recognize that God never tells his people to build the kingdom on violence. The kingdoms of this world are often built on violence, but the kingdom of God is not built on violence. You know, you might remember that the night that Jesus was arrested, when the authorities came to take him away, Peter pulled out his sword and he cut off the ear of one of the people coming to make the arrest. And what did Jesus say? Well, he didn't say, well done, good and faithful servant, good job. <laughs> no, he said, put your sword back in its place. And he didn't say, Peter, put your sword back in its place. Right now, I have to go to the cross. But in the future, that sword will come in handy. Right? No, the next thing that he says is a, is a critique of using the sword to build the kingdom, period. Right? He says, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, that approach doesn't work. That's not how the kingdom of God grows. And after Jesus was arrested and he stood before Pontius Pilate, the governor, he said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, some people think that, or they assume that what Jesus meant here is, my kingdom is not on earth, it's from this place you go to when, when you die. So that's why my servants aren't fighting, right? But I think what Jesus really means here is my kingdom doesn't work the way kingdoms of this world do. My kingdom comes from heaven, so it works different, differently. It's not built on violence the way kingdoms of this world typically are. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In other words, blessed are the gentle, for they will take over the world. That's the way you want to think about that. And that's hard for us to believe. When we look at the world, it doesn't seem that way. But Jesus' teaching is often upside down from our perspective. Because Jesus is not from this world, right? He's from heaven, and his, his kingdom is not of this world either. It operates differently, but it's good. And Jesus is good. So the armor that we're being told to put on is not to ready ourselves for any kind of violence. It's a different kind of armor. It's a better armor. An armor for a spiritual battle. So he tells us 
Stand firm with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots or the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Now, it seems clear to me that when Paul composed this, he had a certain Old Testament passage in mind, as he often does when he writes. And I think the one he had in mind was Isaiah 59, uh, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So you've got two phrases there that Paul uses as well, right? Breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation. But notice what Paul left out, right? Did he tell us to put on the garment of vengeance or zeal as a cloak? Some translations say instead of zeal, fury. I know he purposely left those things out because we're not supposed to wear those, right? That's, that's for God to take care of, not us. So it's interesting when you put the passage in perspective how you can see even more that it's not calling us to this adversarial, aggressive relationship with the world. Okay, so let's look at this armor more closely, okay? Um, you might remember earlier in Ephesians that Paul told, told us to put on the new self. Once again, here he's telling us to put on this armor, which implies that it has been provided for us, but we still have to make an active choice to actually put it on, right? We have a choice to make. Are we going to ignore what's been provided for us or are we actually going to, to wear it? So, first thing that Paul says we need to put on is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And what that should remind us of is that when one of the, the enemies most frequent tactics is deception, right? There's places in scripture that refer to Satan, the devil, as the father of lies. He loves to lie to us. He loves to deceive us. We go all the way back to the first story in the Bible of Adam and Eve in the garden. That is what the serpent did to Eve, right? He deceived Eve and and specifically, he tried to trick her into thinking that God didn't actually want what was best for her. That God wanted to withhold something from her because God was selfish. Right? That's what the serpent tricked her into thinking. The spiritual forces of evil love to trick us into thinking that God, if he exists, doesn't care about us, doesn't love us, is just selfish. And they also love to deceive us into thinking that the real battle that we're supposed to be fighting is against other people rather than against these, these spiritual forces. And in order to stand up to these deceptions, we are called to put on truth. Now, there's a lot of truths that we can know, 
right? But I don't think that when Paul says put on the belt of truth, he's talking about putting on a good liberal arts education. I mean, I care about that. I think that's valuable, right, to know about things like math and science and, and all of that. That's good stuff. But I don't think that when Paul says put on the belt of the truth, that's really what he has in mind, right? What Paul has in mind is the truth that is revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what Paul is saying there is that the truth that we emphasize is that God in the flesh was crucified. That is a truth that both Jews and non-Jews have trouble embracing. But that is what we preach. And for those who are able to accept it, it gives them wisdom. It transforms their perspective of the world. Right? Christ crucified shows us the wisdom of God. Right? It, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that we could explore and what that means. But it shows us, for example, the cost of sin. If God would become flesh and pay that price for sin, right? It shows us the cost of sin. It also shows us God's incredible willingness to forgive because God himself bears that sin. Right? The Christ crucified shows us how much God loves us and cares about us, right? Uh, it shows also the wisdom of loving our enemies because when Christ was crucified, he prayed for the salvation of those who were killing him, Right? So the, the Christ crucified shows us the wisdom of humility, the wisdom of, of love, sacrificial love. And so when we remember Christ crucified, when we wear that belt of truth, we're not deceived. Right? Unlike Eve in the garden, we don't fall for the idea that God doesn't really care about us, right? Because we see God's, reveal, God's love revealed through the cross, and we don't fall for the idea that our real enemies are flesh and blood, other people, because we know that Christ died for those people, that he cares for them deeply. So Christ crucified is the belt of truth that transforms the way that we see the world. Put on the belt of truth, remember Christ crucified, and then you will not be deceived to doubt the goodness of God or to see other people as your true enemies. All right, so next piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. What does it mean to put on righteousness? Well, it might help for us to look back at that passage in the Old Testament that first uses this phrase, breastplate of righteousness. It said that the Lord saw there was no what? No justice. And so he took matters into his own hands, his own righteousness sustained him, and he put it on as his breastplate. So in that passage, what is righteousness? It's the opposite of injustice, right? Righteousness is justice. To be righteous is to be a just person. And what is justice? What does it mean to be just? Well, it means to be in right relationship to God, 
to others, and to the world. It is justice is right relatedness. You know, we tend to think of justice very narrowly, like justice is when someone gets punished for doing something wrong. And that definitely is a component, a form of justice, but the idea of justice is much bigger than just punishment. Uh, justice is the word that we use for when things in the world are the way that they're supposed to be, right? It is just for people to have equal opportunity. It is just for uh, people to be paid fairly and not be taken advantage of. It's just for people not to get away with horrible crimes. It's just for people to be treated with respect and, and dignity, right? So in that Isaiah passage, the Lord saw there was no justice, no righteousness, no right-relatedness. He saw that things in the world were not as they should be. And so he took it upon himself to do something about it. He took it upon himself as the only truly righteous one to do something about this unrighteousness. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came to earth, right? God saw that there was no one who was truly righteous. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Nobody's righteous, not even one. God saw that all had sinned and fallen short of his glory. And so he took it upon himself to do something about it, right? God the Son took on flesh came to an unrighteous world and lived a truly righteous life, and then he offered that life as an atoning sacrifice for our unrighteousness. So, what does it mean to put on righteousness? Well, I would say it means two things. One, it means to trust in Christ's righteousness rather than our own, because as I just said, none of us in our own strength is righteous, right? All of us fail to be totally rightly related to God and to others, right? So when we put on righteousness, what we're doing is we're putting on this confidence that Christ was righteous on our behalf, that God looked at the world, saw the unrighteousness, and said, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do something about it. But I don't want to limit us to only thinking of putting on righteousness in this way. That is the first thing that we should think when we think about putting on righteousness. But we should also see it as to put on righteousness is then for us to be empowered by what Christ did to then also do justice in the world. right? To do our part to help make earth a little more like heaven. That's what God wants his people, the church, to be doing. I think that one of the ways that the powers of evil attack the church is by convincing us that we don't need to worry about justice in this world at all. All we need to worry about is heaven and what happens when we die. But the gospel is not only about where we go when we, when we die, right? The gospel is about 
how we can be empowered to be agents of reconciliation here and now through the power of, of God working in us, right? Whenever the char- church starts to think that we have no role to play in putting on righteousness, um, I think we're open to the attacks of evil. And we, bec- we become exposed as hypocrites, which is a, a, very, a very bad thing. So, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Next, Paul says, put on uh, something on your feet, right? Shoes or boots, I would assume. Um, and he says that these, these shoes or boots, this footwear, is the gospel of peace. Now, I think we can all identify with the fact that if you do not have the right footwear, you're going to be limited in what you can do, right? Especially the last few weeks when it was ridiculously hot. If you went outside when it was 95 degrees, walked on the asphalt without any shoes on, you're going to get burned, right? You are not ready to go anywhere until you have the appropriate footwear. And what Paul is saying here is that we're not ready for the battle against the spiritual forces of evil until we have our metaphorical shoes on And our shoes are the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace is what Paul has been talking about for most of this letter, especially for the first half of the letter, right? It's the good news that Jesus has overcome the powers of sin, death, and the devil. And through him, we have forgiveness of sins. If we are not confident that we have peace with God, we're going to be vulnerable. It's going to be like going through life without our shoes on. We're going to be vulnerable. We're going to lack confidence. But when we are confident that the Lord of heaven and earth has reached out to us and has reconciled us to himself that he has proclaimed peace to us, then we are resilient. Then we can stand up to the challenges of life with this deep assurance that ultimately, it's going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. Put on the gospel of peace and you'll be ready to walk wherever you're supposed to go. But if you don't put it on, if you don't embrace this peace from God, you're going to have a rough time. It's going to be like trying to walk on hot asphalt without shoes as you go through life. All right, so at this point, we've gone through three of the six pieces of armor. And we're going to go through these last three really quickly. And here's why. I don't think that all six pieces of armor are real distinct. And this was a little bit of a frustration for me as I was preparing the message because, you know, you want each individual piece of armor to have its own specific purpose that you can lean into and talk about applications of that and everything. But the more I studied each piece of armor, the more I found all of them kind of blending together. And I'm pretty convinced that each piece of armor is really the same thing. (laughs) 
but it's just talking about it from a different angle. So maybe you'll see what I mean in a moment. Let's look at these last three. Shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. So first, shield of faith. What is faith? Well, faith is a confident trust in something. Now, obviously, Paul is not telling us to just have confident trust in anything, right? He has a specific object of faith in mind. Right? So, what is that object of faith? Well, it's faith in what God has revealed through Jesus. Basically, what we talked about with the belt of truth, right? And then we've got the helmet of salvation. It's kind of a strange one, right? Put on salvation so that you will be saved. Sounds a, a little redundant. And so the only way that I know to interpret that is put on the confidence that Jesus has conquered the forces of evil and that he is bringing all things in heaven and on earth to unity, just like Paul talked about earlier in the letter, right? So trust that, which again is pretty much the same thing as picking up the shield of faith, right? And then he tells us to pick up the sword of the Spirit, and he tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And what Paul probably had in mind there when he said Word of God is, again, specifically the message of the Gospel. That was the Word. That was the message that he was emphasizing, right? Same thing that is meant by the belt of truth, right? The Word of God is this message that Christ was crucified and risen to save sinners. He is the wisdom of God revealed. And I want us to take a moment to recognize that the only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the word of God, right? So when the powers of evil tell us to despair and to lose hope, we're supposed to remember the word of God, the gospel, right? Remember the resurrection. Remember the hope you have. When the evil powers tell us to hate our human enemies, we're supposed to remember Jesus on the cross praying for his earthly enemies, right? When the evil powers tell us that we don't matter and that God doesn't really care about us, we're supposed to remember God the Son humbling himself and coming to earth and coming to a manger and then dying on a cross, right, for our sake. The word of God is supposed to be the sword that we use to fight off these, these lies, these deceptions. So the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, boots of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. All of these are different expressions of the same basic idea, which is put on the gospel. Put on the gospel. Put, put on trust in the truth revealed through Christ. Put on trust that he has made things right. That he has brought righteousness. Put on trust that he has given you peace with God. Put on trust that he has brought salvation. That he has ultimately defeated the powers of evil. That's the whole thing. And then once you have put on that trust, Paul says, stand. Hold fast to that. 
So most of the armor isn't really about what we do, but our trust in what God has done for us. I think that's pretty cool. But that said, I think we should finish by recognizing one thing that Paul does tell us to do, a specific action. This is so important that he finishes the whole letter with this, right? Pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And when you hear that command, I don't want you to hear something like, come up with long lists of every request you have and constantly be going through them. Although part of prayer is praying specific requests. Paul says that there. But don't just, don't just think that. When Paul says pray in the Spirit on all occasions, you want to think something like keep company with God. Keep company with God. One of the great mistakes we can make is to start thinking of God just as this object or idea, this being who we discuss and think about, but do not actually have any relationship with. Paul is saying, talk to God, listen to God, keep company with God. If we do not do that, then the flaming arrows of the evil one will burn us. But when we trust in the gospel, when we recognize Christ crucified and resurrected and everything that means, when we keep company with God, then the powers of evil tremble. And we stand. And we're victorious. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us here to take our stand against the evil forces that seek to deceive and confuse and divide and fill us with hatred. Lord, transform our minds as we trust in what you have revealed through Christ crucified. Lord, help us to put on righteousness. Help us to be your ambassadors. Help us to keep company with you. And Lord, I, I pray that as we trust you, uh, you would fill us with joy. The joy of knowing that we have peace with you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this armor against whatever life may throw at us. In Jesus' name, amen.